Sam, if you were in a dark forest, how would you feel about flashlights? If I was in, in the dark forest? If you're in a dark forest, how would you feel about flashlights? Well, <laughs> if I'm in a dark forest, how would I feel about flashlights? Well, um, how philosophical do we want to get? So uh, if in my current uh, state, I'd love a flashlight. If I had evolved to be able to see in the night, probably wouldn't need one. So uh, depends uh, how, uh, you know, how much are we going down the rabbit hole here? We're not going very far down because that was my botched attempt at an introduction that was a simile to how navigating medical practice without proper documentation of what patient <laughs> records are like is like is basically going through a forest without a flashlight. But listeners, my name is Jeff, and apart from regularly botching introductions that I don't properly script, I'm the host of How It's Med alongside my co-host Abdo uh, on this episode of MedTech Talks, the series where we talk with people shaping the future of healthcare. Our guest is the inimitable Dr. Sam Garby, uh, internal medicine specialist, previous associate chief medical information officer for VCH Authority, and co-founder of Aria Health. Sam, how are you doing? Good, guys. Welcome. Uh, well, thanks for having me here. And uh, yeah, it's, it's a pleasure to be on Honor. Uh, you can tell just based on my answer that I'm clearly a nerdy internist. I'm like, well, let me get, let me have some more information about this. So yeah, great, uh, great to be on. Great. Um, uh, the question that we usually start off with just to set the setting is kind of, you know, how you got uh, into the medical space, your physician. So I'll kind of pack all that question together. What drew you towards uh, medicine and internal medicine initially? Uh, yeah, you know, it, it just kind of happened, which isn't a common answer that you get, but I didn't, you know, I wasn't one of those kids who grew up wanting to be a doctor. In fact, uh, far from it. Uh, you know, I had no clue what I wanted to do. I think the first thing I ever wanted to do was a ghostbuster. I think I was in the first grade and then I was told that's not a job. So, um, you know, I think at one point, uh, I was thinking of becoming a cartoonist. I actually used to love to draw and paint and do all that kind of stuff. And, you know, astronomer at NASA and all the things as a kid, you kind of go through. And then, um, back in high school, we actually had to do uh, volunteer work as part of our international baccalaureate. I, uh, I grew up in IB. Montreal. Um, yeah, the IB program. And I went to a French high school. I went to French school in my whole life, actually until the age of 16, but, uh, um, yeah, so we had to do volunteer work and I ended up working with the Canadian Cancer Society. And, um, from there, I ended up doing some palliative care work, uh, in our local hospital, uh, in the suburb that I, that I grew up in. And so I just kind of got exposed to it that way. Um, really the only reason why I got into that was I'd lost both my uh, grandparents on my father's side to cancer. And so it was my way of saying, Hey, you know, let's try to give back and, um, and kind of honor their memory. And, and I remember. From there, I ended up uh, getting exposed to healthcare and medicine and people in it. And uh, fast forward to being, you know, 17, 18 years old, applying to undergraduate programs and kind of scratching my head, not knowing really uh, what to do. And uh, and I remember talking to some of the folks I used to volunteer with, and they're like, hey, have you thought about medicine? I was like, eh, you know, I, I don't like most of the doctors I've actually met. I think they're kind of, you know, a bit stuck up and kind of, they don't spend that much time with the patients you know, they, they pop into the palliative care ward, you know, they don't spend that much time. And in the rest of the day, these patients are kind of just, just there and you spend a lot of time with them, obviously, and get to know them personally. But, you know, I remember, uh, Joanne, who was, uh, the head of the volunteer, she was like, well, actually that's 
kind of exactly the reason why maybe you should consider medicine. You actually seem to care. And, um, and I think you'd be good for it. And I was like, well, yeah, medicine, eh? So, you know, from there, I was like, well, let's look into this. Let's think about it. And a couple undergraduate courses later and a couple, you know, a single, thank God, a single MCAT later and, uh, and you know, got into med school and here we are. Um, and, you know, to answer your question, why did I choose internal medicine? Uh, th this is another funny story. I, I was at the end of my first year of med school. This is how blissfully ignorant I was. And, um, at the end of our microbiology unit, I remember having, we were all having beers with the staff and, and the folks who, uh, who taught the unit. And this guy, Dal Breedis, who was the head of ID at McGill, great guy, great teacher. Um, and, uh, I was like, hey, this, this is great. I really enjoyed this. You know, it'd be great if there was a job where I can do this and then related stuff. To this is like, well, what about internal medicine? And I was like, what's, what's internal medicine? So like, are you an idiot? Like a year into med school, you know, what internal medicine is, this is super embarrassing, but I always tell, tell people about this. That's, that's how blissfully ignorant I was. I figured, you know, when I went into medicine, I was like surgical oncology was kind of what I was thinking about and other surgical specialties. And then, uh, you know, as the year went on, I was like, well, this is probably not for me for, for different kind of reasons. Um, and, uh, yeah, so I, I said, well, internal medicine, that could be cool. And the more I got exposed to different specialties, uh, and different rotations, I really loved the fact that most of the internists I met were really impressive doctors. They, they knew, you know, more than the average pair. Um, they knew a lot. Um, and there was a depth to their knowledge too, not just, you know, uh, knowing a lot, but, but, uh, you know, it was pretty interesting. So I was like, well, it's, it's almost like being a super doctor, you can help people in a lot of ways. And that's kind of the reason why I signed up, right? I didn't sign up for anything other than I want to help people in a meaningful way and, and do meaningful work. And as an internist, um, you know, I was like, I, I could learn quite a bit and maybe have more of an impact there. And, um, you know, you can work in the ICU in the community, you can do quite a few different subspecialties and, you know, procedures and outpatient and inpatient. So, uh, kind of got enthralled by it all. And uh, I was lucky to have a lot of good mentors and, and other doctors that I met along the way who were pretty exceptional people and physicians. And here we are. So then looking back, what piece of advice would you give yourself at the beginning of your undergrad? <laughs> um, I think ignorance is bliss. If I had known what I know now, I actually don't know if I would have gone through the gauntlet. I think part of it is, you know, I don't regret doing medicine. I'm actually very thankful of my experiences. Um, but I think that a lot of us are woefully unprepared um, for the rigors of training. Um, I think that, uh, you go into it being very idealistic about most things. I don't think it's just medicine, but when you're young, you're quite idealistic about the world and what you want to accomplish in it. And I think that you're not as pragmatic or practical. And I think that you're constantly surprised and a lot of our failures, you know, in youth and in mind personally were, oh, okay, well, this, this is, this is a surprise. This is you know, difficult. This is an endeavor. You know, I never thought I'd stay up 40 hours straight, you know, working in a hospital. If somebody had told an 18 year old me that, you know, part of this is spending years and years, every third or fourth day at the time being awake for 24, 30, sometimes 40 hours at a time. Um, you know, that, that would have made me maybe think twice. I think that, uh, the culture of medicine has slowly been improving and changing. But again, when I trained not that long ago, it was a very shame-based culture. 
you know, if I had, you know, known to what degree that culture was pervasive and the experiences that you go through as a trainee, I don't know. I think that those are things that I wish I had more insight. And even though I think that most of us, when we're thinking about medicine and preparing for medicine, we do volunteer work, we speak to folks. If you're fortunate, you have relatives or friends who are in the field and give you more insight, but you know, there's, there's really a lot that you never are really prepared for until you're there in the trenches, right? Is it's kind of, I always make that the analogy of residency and fellowship in a lot of ways was like being in the military. It's like boot camp and then you're sent off, you know, you're in the trenches, you become really close with the people that you train with. You learn a lot of stuff, you know, uh, in practice that you couldn't necessarily prepared for just in, in the classroom. Um, and you know, back then we didn't really have sim centers. There was no simulation teaching. First time we put in, you know, a central line was in the middle of the night blindly without an ultrasound, you know, um, there was a lot of things that, again, I'm not that old of a guy. I got some grays coming in, but this wasn't that long ago. And you know, there's a lot of very intense, crazy stories that in retrospect, now you sit back and you laugh and you're like, oh, wow, we went, we went through that. But you know, if I look back and in a perfect world, I, I don't think it should be a trial by fire kind of sink or swim, which is a lot of what medical training was. So then how is the culture changing now and where do you see it going? You know, I think it's, it's moving in a positive direction. Uh, I think that, you know, it's, it's been slow to change. I've, I was impressed by, you know, how uh, hierarchical it was when I got into uh, medicine and medical training. And I think that, um, you know, in retrospect now as staff, I look back and I'm like, well, these trainees, students, residents, fellows are, you know, there are colleagues, there are future colleagues and they actually have your colleagues quicker than, than you realize. Um, I think that we, you know, we are becoming more supportive. We are becoming more, uh, empathetic to, to those things and having better infrastructure in place to support people. Um, you know, as you're going through your training and preparing people, sim centers, mentorship programs, you know, time off work hour restrictions, which I've kind of fought for since, since being in med school and residency, I used to be the vice president of RBC, which is what the, you know, uh, residents union, I think they've been renamed now. Um, but, uh, but you know, we walk, we worked really hard for work hour restrictions, you know, to say, Hey, listen, you're working 24 hours straight. Maybe it should be 24 plus two, and then you can go home and sleep, or maybe you should be protected to sleep because, you know, I, I don't think that's safe. Um, but I, I see those things changing slowly, but changing even as staff. I mean, to be honest with you, I can understand better why some of those things were the way they were as a trainee, because as a staff, you're often working 24 hours or more. You often don't get a post-call day. So, you know, I see that culture reflected and staff them in some ways. You know, as a staff, you don't even have mentorship or coaching. You know, you look at a lot of other professions, you know, there, there is better infrastructure in place. You know, listen, if Tiger Woods as a coach being like, Hey, you can, you can get a better golf swing, you know, uh, as a staff position in any specialty, I think that we should have folks who help us get better, uh, and in many different ways. And I also think that, you know, as a staff, it almost was like starting over in some ways, because there's so many things that they don't teach you how to build, how to run a practice, how to, you know, a lot of the, the intricacies of, of running an outpatient clinic, if you're doing that, the intricacies of how to teach effectively, you know, I think the universities did a good job of preparing us from a clinical standpoint, 
but there's a lot of intricacies around being staff, even though you're not prepared for. So it's not just that when you look at healthcare and medicine, that they're, I think we're letting trainees down and we're doing a better job of moving in the right direction. But I also think that we're letting ourselves down as staff, um, as we move forward. And you know, I'm happy to see some of those changes where it's more transparent in terms of people talking about burnout, talking about their feelings and, and that not being seen as weakness. You know, when I was training, saying you're tired was, you know, people would look at you like, what do you mean you're tired? Or saying, Hey, can I go have lunch? It's 2 PM. You're like, what do you mean go have lunch? I haven't had lunch. You shouldn't have lunch. And so I always thought that was kind of silly. Um, and it's nice to see that it's, you know, a lot of that stuff is obviously changing and going in the right direction. Mm -hmm. I mean, talking about culture change overall, um, I I've talked with, uh, other physicians who've gotten involved in physician entrepreneurship, whether or not it's in medical devices, pharma, digital services, digital medicine, and they've to a large extent talked about pushback against getting involved in anything entrepreneurial yes. in the past. So what was your origin story? What was the setting there and why did you choose to stray off the marked path? Yeah. You know, for me is that I didn't come from a medical background necessarily or a medical family. So a lot of this for me was, was new And the way that I'm hardwired is I walk into most settings and I think, how can we do things better? How can we improve things? I look at logistics, you know, I, it maybe I think more like an engineer than a doctor. I don't, I don't know, but, um, I love making things better. I think what makes me happy with when I wake up in the morning and, you know, even when I was a trainee, I'd look at, Hey, this form, well, why don't we make this form more efficient and redo it? And then you get in trouble for that. No, this is how we enter this form. This is how we write our notes as well as very inefficient. Can we do things this way? Nope. Slap on the wrist. Hey, why don't we do this better from anything logistically? And, um, and you know, I think the culture, as we talked about is very conservative, old school father knows best and that's changing, but at the same time, it inhibits any form of innovation, technological or otherwise. And it was always a bit odd to me because as doctors, you would think we're in a profession where we have to, you know, strive for exceptionalism, not just excellence, but near perfection. Obviously it's, you know, very difficult to attain, um, and achievable only in finite ways, but we have to reflect on how could we be better? How could the infrastructure be better? How could the processes be better? How can we provide better care? How can we do better for education? And, you know, I looked at the educational system, changing that culturally is quite difficult. Um, administratively, I've had administrative jobs where I've tried to improve, you know, from technology and infrastructure and everything else, quite difficult. Um, there's a lot of good people who mean well, but these are large organizations and organisms and that are, you know, slow to change. And, you know, as I was, uh, finishing up my training, I thought to myself, seeing how technology had really revolutionized the way that most industries do things. I said to myself, this could be a low hanging fruit because of seeing that back in 2012, 2013, when I finished my fellowship, everything was on paper at the hospital, you know, at that time, maybe 50, 60% of outpatient clinics were were digital. There were still a lot of paper clinics. A lot of the stuff wasn't, you know, we've come a long way. Telehealth didn't really exist. Um, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So I said to myself, well, I want to make healthcare better. I want to help to improve things. And I think technology is that low hanging fruit where, you know, we could do a lot of good. And so from there, I, um, I went and did a master's in health informatics. And, um, you know, even at that time I had a couple of folks saying, well, what's this? Why are you doing this? Is this, is this useful? It's kind of a waste of time. 
you know, medical directors and other, other folks who are pretty high up kind of, you know, as I was finishing up my fellowship and, and I said, no, I think, I think this is really important for us to better understand technology and healthcare and how we can use that to improve the delivery of care to our patients and also make our own lives easier and less stressful and less hectic. Um, and so that, that's essentially how I got into that and, uh, yeah, everything since then. I mean, you, you ended up starting to work with a startup, I think it was in 2013 and we had talked a little bit off air as to the pushback that you experienced. Can you tell us a little bit about that and how you think those underlying narratives and feelings will or will not contribute to the slow uptake of even medical informatic technology in the future? Yeah. You know, um, when I started as staff, um, I said to myself, finally, I can make a difference because as a student, they said, you're just a student, stick to learning medicine. As a resident, you say, well, I'm a resident. And they still said, yeah, you know what? There's very little you can do to change the system. As a fellow, same thing. Finally, the staff, I said to myself, you know, um, let's, let's get our hands dirty. Let's make a difference. Let's try something. And the first thing we did was actually, um, you know, a handover application called the virtual ward. So I remember one of the things that was always frustrating was seeing how poorly medical handover was done from shift to shift, you know, somebody would work 24 hours, they'd be post-call or they'd be on for a week at a time. And then, you know, on Monday you'd show up and best case you had a list of patients in alphabetical order or, you know, location in the hospital. You went around and it was, it was a very reactive process. You didn't know who needed discharge, who was particularly sick. It was very difficult to get that verbal handover from, from staff or from, you know, even as a trainee. And so uh, I said to myself, well, Maybe this is that some of that low hanging fruit where we can create some digital infrastructure and tools to help with handover. And so we created the work virtual ward, particularly after a rough day where I came home and I said, okay, that we, I got to do this. I call up one of my good buddies, Rich Stramko, who's also a, a physician. And I said, Rich, you know, we, we'd always talked about doing something like this. Do you want to you know, do it? And he said, yeah, great. So, uh, we got together and, and connected with a couple other friends and built this app and put it out for free. And within, you know, a couple of months, we had uh, 700 people using it uh, across the province. And, um, you know, it was an app on your phone where you had, you know, all the patients where they were at, their, how sick they are, what their level of discharge is, what they're there for in a to-do list. Super, super helpful. Yeah, it's better than, than nothing or a piece of paper or, you know, a Google Doc somewhere. And you were able to have, you know, pharmacists and doctors, and nurses, and everybody on the same platform working together to exchange information and to make decisions about care and to improve the flow. Now, unfortunately we got shut down, uh, because we, we didn't do an STRA or a PIA, which is two of the privacy and security measures that you need in place to be able to put any kind of data into such a system. And, uh, that was on us. Those are bad. Uh, you know, we were young, we were naive and, um, and I think there's a certain level of hubris in terms of how we went about it. Um, and we learned from it, you know, and, uh, we worked with the health authorities to get that back up and running. It took a couple of years and we did things the right way. And it was an incredible learning experience. And so now, you know, like, like Lazarus rising from the dead, you know, that, that, uh, virtual ward handover tool is now being used across Canada, um, across various hospitals. Uh, but that was, that was our first foray into things. And then, you know, from there kept getting my hands dirty in terms of saying, okay, how can we make things better? How can we work with other folks who feel the same way? And, and I remember at the time, a good friend of mine that started, um, that co-founded a company called Medio, which was one of the first, if not the first telehealth company in, uh, in BC. 
And at that time, you know, telehealth was, you had to have a big clunky camera. You had to, had to have a special computer that was connected and half the time it wouldn't work and you'd show up for your telehealth. It, it's, it's crazy that I say this, but this was not that long ago. And you know, you'd have to call tech support and tech support would show up an hour late and the patient's calling saying, Hey, you know, where's my doctor at? And usually that patient is quite remote and it was an incredible waste of time and money. And, you know, we said to ourselves, well, your, your computer, you know, has a camera good enough, has a microphone good enough, you know, and the technology is there. Why don't we just create, and now it's ubiquitous right now. We don't even think twice about it, but 10 years ago, zoom didn't exist. You know, we had Skype. That's about it. Um, FaceTime wasn't what it is right now. Bandwidth wasn't what it is right now. So I said, Hey, listen, yeah, let's do this. And so we create an application, um, where essentially you can provide telehealth. And again, the pushback was almost immediate from the ministry and the college, but the, the adoption was pretty incredible from patients saying, you know what, it's an incredible tool that if you're remote and you don't have access to specialists, you know, really did provide an amazing opportunity for better care. If you were elderly and you had, you know, mobility issues, well, you know what, instead of getting a handy dark or getting somebody to drive you, coming all the way to the clinic or the hospital, you know, paying for parking, waiting for half an hour to an hour, seeing your physician. And then after 15 minutes going home, it's not a really good, you know, process. It's bad for the patient. It's bad for, for a lot of folks, right? It's expensive. It's, it's uh, logistically, et cetera, et cetera. So, um, essentially, you know, that was the first telehealth in any significant way that was adopted because we were fortunate enough to have the fee codes in BC. A lot of doctors started billing these codes. A lot of patients started gravitating towards telehealth. And, uh, I actually saved an article from the global mail where they said, oh, this is terrible for patient care. The doctors who do this are not good doctors. We don't condone this kind of behavior. You know, they gave, they gave the company a shakedown at one point. I remember the CEO having some, some interesting stories, um, about that. And, you know, they made a hard stance saying we will not tolerate a virtual walking clinic. And, um, you know, there was very stringent, um, uh, kind of criteria put in for providing care via telehealth back then. And, uh, and, you know, fast forward now with the pandemic, you know, thank God we had these tools in place and we're able to, you know, crank them up and be able to actually provide care. Otherwise we wouldn't really hoop. So it shows you how much things have changed, how quickly, um, but it's also been a struggle. It's been a struggle. You know, if you talk to folks who aren't medical and a lot of my friends aren't in medicine, I tell them some of these stories, um, and they kind of scratch their heads. They're like, really? Like that much backlash, that much resistance, that, that much, you know, yeah, yeah. Honestly, I'm, I'm just getting a bit frustrated here. Your stories, it's, uh, it's a lot. Where is all this pushback coming from? What, why is it so taboo to try to innovate in that way of bringing in technology? I think it's part of the greater culture. It's, uh, it's a top down structure in medicine. It has been for a very long time. Um, you know, it's, uh, and it's very hard to get these grassroots movements in place, you know, at any level. Right. Um, and so technology, you know, in every facet of which is, or, you know, medicine, I think still is 10, 15 years behind uh, most other industries. You know, we use pagers. Who uses pagers? We still use pagers, right? Up until very recently, and in fact, still now across Canada and various health authorities and provinces, you get in trouble if you text about patients or email, right? 
can't use email, can't use text. So everybody else uses text and email. There are secure ways to do it, you know, where you can abide by privacy and security standards. Um, you know, we use fax ubiquitously. This is how physicians communicate with each other through fax. How is that secure and safe? You don't know if the fax went through. You don't, you know, you often don't know, hey, was this the right number? Did somebody, you know, type in the wrong one? And then you compromise that. I mean, we send referrals for patients through fax. If your family doctor, if you're lucky enough to have a family doctor in this country, and you know, 25% of Canadians don't have access to uh, a GP, you know, and, but if you're lucky enough to see a family doctor go to a walk-in and they say, Hey, listen, I need you to see the specialist or get this test done. They fax it. They usually print something and fax it, or they have an e-fax device to their EMR. So if you look at technology across medicine, we use pagers to communicate faxes to share information. We use two tin cans with a string between them in terms of our stethoscope to take you know, listen to people's hearts and lungs. You know, the fact that that hasn't changed in 120 years or even since the days of Lenek, I mean, it's, it's embarrassing. Um, and it's, it's not just embarrassing, but it's a disservice to our patients. You know, we're causing harm by not adopting better tools for communication and sharing of information every single day. And, the, and that's, that's something that's kept me, kept me up at night. And that motivates me when I wake up in the morning to say, listen, almost every day as a physician in this country, you're causing harm in one way or another, but it's often small paper cuts. It's small, you know, death, death by a thousand cuts, you know, and, and often you're not obviously not doing it on purpose, but you send the fax. that fax doesn't go through six months later, somebody says, Hey, listen, I still haven't had this ultrasound done. I haven't seen the specialist, right? Or you say, Hey, listen, this person needs to see this, this particular subspecialist, but you know, I don't know who has what wait times. And then often the office assistants will do that. And maybe they're not sending to somebody who could see them as effectively or as quickly that, that causes harm. Listen, like these, the way that we share information and triage information and provide care and let alone the fact that we don't use analytics, you know, most businesses and let's call a spade a spade. I mean, you know, there's a lot of money spent in healthcare um, and a lot of money wasted because we don't look at analytics. We don't look at data, our clinics don't have access to that. If you're on paper, you sure aren't. And most of the electronic health records out there have no analytics dashboards. They, they aren't telling you how you're doing, how your patient outcomes are, um, how your, you know, wait times are, how flow is. There's a million and one things that you can look at to help improve the provision of care. Um, and we don't have those and, and it's crazy that we don't because the technology is there. So, you know, from all that is why we started Aria Health, which is um, my current company that I co-founded with, with two of my good friends, Rich Tramco and Rich Vandegrid. And, you know, our whole goal is to say, listen, let's look at these problems in healthcare and let's try to address them and let's try to fix them because, you know, nobody else really is. And, you know, this is five doctors, four doctors, you know, instead of sitting around waiting for some big tech companies or big, you know, health authorities or the ministry or anybody else, which we haven't seen fast enough progress. You know, let's become masters of our own destiny. Let's do these grassroots movements where we know what we need in our industry. And, um, you know, let's, let's work hard together, you know, in, in cooperation with everybody else and anybody else who wants to, um, to move things forward and make things a little bit better. Again, just hearing you talk, the more, the more I learn, the more frustrated I get. So. Where can someone actually make a difference in healthcare? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I always tell people do something you're passionate about. Um, and, and because it, it really is a uh, labor of love. What I can tell you that with what 
what I've been doing with Aria is, you know, um, it's, it's not the motivation isn't anywhere else other than, Hey, I want to make things better. And I think technology is an effective way of doing that. And you wake up every morning and you're excited to do it. Uh, and I think that if, if for you listening or you, you guys sitting there saying, Hey, what can I do? So much to do in society, not just healthcare, but look around us, right? There's things can always be better. People need help. Uh, logistics can be better. Infrastructure can be better. This is, there's a million and one things, but I would say find something you're passionate about in your community. Um, and, and just get started. You know, a lot of the time, you know, for ourselves, I didn't know what I was doing when I started. Right. Uh, sure. I did a master's. Does that really prepare you? Not, not really. It gives you some, you know, some education, some insight, but really it was just getting my hands dirty, talking to friends. Hey, what are you doing? This cool. Can I help? I, I never got paid for, for any of the things that I did, you know, uh, working at, you know, with getting Medio up and running for telehealth, you know, with the, with the virtual ward and what we built for handover and even with Aria, you know, these are things that, uh, the whole time I've, I've said, Hey, how can I help? So just talk to your friends, talk to people, reach out to people that you may not even know, but that seem like they're doing interesting stuff. And if you really, you really care, say, Hey, listen, let me, let me just help. Let me get my hands dirty. And you get an incredible education. You learn stuff that you'll never learn otherwise. You know, and even when we started Aria, I remember again, Colin Rich and saying, Hey, you know, maybe we should start our own electronic health record because everything else out there is pretty terrible. And he said to me, who, who the hell are we to start an electronic health record? That's insane. And I was like, yeah, you're right. But nobody else has it figured out. So how much worse could we do? Right. Uh, worst case scenario is you fail and, and failure is okay for me, right? If that's a worst case scenario is status quo. I'm still stuck using the same terrible, you know, technology that's out there. And, and in the process, I learned a lot through the, that failure. So it's a pretty good worst case scenario. I'm, I'm willing to, to do that. That's interesting. So it's not like you thought of it as, Hey, this space is, uh, crowded. Um, there's so many established players. I shouldn't go into it. What you're saying is what's the worst that could happen. You know, I like it, it could go south and, you know, we're stuck with what we have. So that actually flipped the question that I had on its head. Um, what I did note though, was that when I was digging into Aria was that the, the three co-founders, all of you are doctors, and I'm not sure if either of you or any of you have technical backgrounds. So how did that work? What barriers and pitfalls did you run into, if any? Yeah. Yeah. So I think I would have loved to have another co-founder. I think we all would have loved to have another co-founder who had a firm tech background. It would have made things easier. Unfortunately, we just didn't know anybody who, who had that ability or was interested and as passionate as we were to, you know, blood, sweat, and tears to get this, this company and this product up and running. Um, you know, Rich and Rich are both physicians, two of my best friends. We met in residency. They're two of the greatest guys you'll ever meet. Rich Vandegreen is a cardiologist. First time I met him, it was first day of residency. Uh, we went out for drinks and I remember at the end of the night, he crashed on my couch and I was like, this guy's great. We're going to be good buddies. And here we are, you know, 15 years later. Um, and then Rich Stramko, I've known since the first time I came to Vancouver and, you know, I was an elective student and he was a year ahead and, and was nicest guy in the world. Um, great guy, uh, heart of gold. Both, both these guys, two of the best people you'll ever meet. And we all feel the same way in terms of, um, you know, wanting to make healthcare better and feeling frustrated about how slowly things move and saying, Hey, listen, let's just, let's stop complaining. Let's do something about it. So we've been talking about this stuff for years as, as residents and fellows. Um, 
And um, yeah, so that's essentially how we we got together. But Rich Vandegreen's a cardiologist here in Vancouver, and Rich Stramko's a geriatrician in Hamilton currently. Um, so yeah. Yeah, but to answer your question, it would have been great to have some more technical expertise, but that's where you do the best with what you can. Things are never perfect. You know, sometimes better is the enemy of good. And, you know, you say, hey, listen, let's, um, you know, let's do our best to, to find other folks who can help us and let's do our best to learn what we need to learn. Um, and yeah, there's, there's going to be pitfalls in the way. There's going to be failures in the way. Um, but that's, that's just part of it. I think that's actually something I want to delve a little bit into if you're actually okay with it, mainly because like so many of the physician founders who we've talked with have had uh, co-founders who are technical because building out a piece of technology requires technical experience to some extent. So in essence, you're essentially outsourcing a lot of the work that you're doing and you might not necessarily have the deepest insight into what the quality of the work is apart from what you can see on the surface. So yep. what were some of the, I guess, horror stories, if there were any <laughs> that you ran into? Yeah. So, you know, when we first started this, um, at the time it was, uh, myself and Rich Stramp, when we first started and Rich Stramp was said, Hey, listen, let me get, you know, handover back up and running and, and, and do that. And you know what? I was like, well, let me, let me try to get the EHR up and running. And so I sat down in front of my computer and just made wireframes. I made through the most rudimentary tools that I had said, this is what I think an EMR should look like. This is what, how it should flow. This is how it should look. So the most important part was for me, the product and how it interacted with, with the user, with the healthcare practitioner. And, you know, I'd seen systems out there that were just for GPs, which is for specialists. I'd seen things that were clunky, a million pop-ups, a million icons, a million buttons, you know, in. It was the user experience and the design that was so important for me. Just imagine using a flip phone, trying to text. That's, that's silly. Uh, you know, here comes a smartphone. So that's what I was trying to do was saying, well, let me really try to create the simplest, most intuitive design for the interaction that a healthcare practitioner has with that technology where they review information, create new information, share that information, and then eventually do their billings. So at a very bare bones. And so I was like, what is the minimal viable product here? And I did a lot of the wireframes. I did a lot of the sketches and that was more important to me than, than the engine of the car maybe. And so that, you know, may not be a very good answer, but it was within the confines of what we had. We said, well, you know, we have to trust that we find people to build this and that it, it is at a high quality, but you know, the engine doesn't really matter if you can't sit in the car comfortably in some ways and you can't drive it effectively. Right. And so we started with. Hey, let's design the product itself. And then, you know, we tried, we started with a minimal viable product. We went online, there's sites where you can hire folks, um, who, you know, uh, are essentially contractors and we built a minimal viable product, not what we were going to actually launch, but something that we could actually, the idea that I had in my head, I wanted to be able to show that to other people more than just sketches, more than just wireframes. And so what we did is that. We hired out some folks and we, and we worked very closely with them. Almost every day I would touch base with the developers. Let me see what's going on. Where are we at? Nope, this doesn't work. This works. And so I learned, oh, instead of just making wireframes, let me make very detailed user stories. And so it progressed to, okay, let's make sure that that vision translates to the developers of wireframes and designs are here. And then here's the very detailed user stories of you click here, this happens, you do this, this happens in, the, in incredible detail. And then we kept getting better at that. And 
you know, building a team that helped us do that part even, right? We eventually got folks who were UI, UX designers to help, you know, because I'm, I'm not that, um, but to make it better and more precise. And then we got folks who are, you know, product managers who can help us with better user stories and how do we put those into Confluence documents and then how do we make Jira tickets around those? So it's very, very specific. So you try to minimize chaos because, you know, at the end of the day, what I've realized is, is that there's a lot of things that you can do in preparation for the developers doing their work that makes their work more efficient and more reliable. And, you know, that, that really was the process that we got to. And then once we were able to build those minimal viable products and then get, show it to more folks, we were able to get some investment. We were able to get more engagement. We were able then to build, you know, that 1.0 and then from there being able to, to get you know, eventually folks who are more senior involved, uh, in terms of architecture, in terms of folks who come on board as a CTO, and then really look at the product and say, Hey, from a back end, this could be better quality. Let's change this. Oh, let's build this. So, you know, we didn't build it perfect the first time around, but that's the nature of things. Right. But then a year later we said, Hey, EFACs could be better. You know, let's build that. And that was a painful six months of like gutting that and building it better. So it worked right. Or then, you know going through building it a particular way and then saying, oh, the system's slowing down because now that we have so many more users, we didn't think that users could use the system in a particular way that slows down the system. That's how it was built in the back end. Oh, well, let's build that, let's fix that. So you want to be proactive, but again, you know, certain things are more reactive, especially early on where you may not have all the resources and expertise you'd like, but you do with what you can. You try to be pragmatic about it uh, because there's a bigger, bigger goal in mind. Going from there, then, what would you say is the most useful slash practical skill that you needed to learn from all of this? Um, patience. I'm, uh, I'm, sh I'm not the best at patience or being patient. So, uh, I've gotten better at, at that because everything always takes longer than you'd like. And I'm still learning to be better. Anybody on my team was probably listening right now. They're like, Sam, patient. Um, but I've had to, <laughs> I've had to, to get better at that. And I think communication, you really have to communicate very effectively with the team and among the team and creating a, a place where people one feel comfortable, um, to share their thoughts and ideas. Cause a lot of good ideas come from everybody, right? It's not just top down. I never was a firm believer in that, you know, kind of cult of the leader kind of thing. Um, you know, there's a lot of smart people on our team, um, uh, we're pretty incredible and have a lot of great ideas. And so it's creating a place where people can speak freely, explore the space, you know, and, and do these creative things and communicate effectively when there are problems, when there are concerns, you know, from, from everyone. Um, and I think that improving infrastructure for communication. So, you know, are we just doing everything by email? Are we doing by Slack? What should we talk over the phone versus email versus Slack versus meetings in person, et cetera, et cetera. Um, learning a lot of those intricacies and I think also just management skills. I mean, you know, I, I don't have any formal business expertise or training. You, you just kind of learn this on the job, but I think a lot of this is comes from a lot of this comes from who you are as a person. I look at, I look at rich and rich as well, and we all have our strengths and flaws. And I think that we do so well in terms of running the company because we're all kind of complementary. And we all have certain skills and shortcomings, but that balance each other. And I think that's why folks 
in, in the tech space, especially always say, Hey, listen, get a co-founder because one, you, you're going to need somebody to vent to and to bounce ideas off of, you know, those days where you're feeling pretty down and somebody else picks you up and vice versa. That's really important, but also being able to, to be, you know, folks jokingly say, Hey, you guys are like a three headed C CEO to, to Aria, but it's actually really good. Uh, we each have our strengths and weaknesses and, and that really goes a long way. Um, and yeah, I don't think there's any one particular single skill that I would say, uh, you need to do something like this. If somebody's listening and saying, Hey, what does it take? I would say, well, it takes, it takes a lot of things. It takes, you, know, you gotta be patient. You gotta be, you know, effective. You gotta work really hard. You gotta be gritty. You have to be talented and have ideas and you know, all of the above. Right. But it's just, it's just finding people who will bring that to the table. Cause no one person is going to have all that. I found it very interesting that the things that you brought up were mostly soft skills. So then what soft skills would you say translated from medicine to the startup world? Do you mind clarifying uh, what you mean by soft skills? Sorry, I don't, uh, uh communication, for example, I, would you not consider that to be a soft skill? Oh, I just don't know the nomenclature, hard skill versus a soft skill. Uh, <laughs> well, not that you're asking me to define it. I'm not sure either. Okay. <laughs> let me, let me reframe this. Uh, what skills would you say you brought from medicine to the startup world or vice versa? Oh, frustration. My frustration, the biggest, the biggest thing that I brought was the fact that I was so frustrated in terms of how things were not done well. Um, if it wasn't for that, I would have never started Aria or done any of the things that I did. If, you know, I would have loved it. You know, every time I saw a new, you know, EMR vendor, or I go to a conference or a new doctor's office or a different hospital, you know, I was lucky enough to do, you know, uh, locums all over California. And I worked in Quebec and all over BC and I'd go up to, you know, Northwest territories and work there. And I've, I've worked in France and Europe. And so, you know, every time I'd go somewhere, I was always excited to see, Hey, how are people doing things here? How's the technology here? And and I always really was hoping somebody else would have already fixed the problems that I saw when it came to tech. Um, and nobody did. And I think that frustration was the biggest motivator to, to do this and to keep doing it. And every day I wake up and I hear about new companies and new cool stuff. And I love to collaborate with people and see what's going on. And a lot of the time I'm, I'm a little disappointed. Sometimes I'm really impressed and I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Let's work together. Let's, how can I help and how can we collaborate? Um, but yeah, I think that in terms of actual skills, frustration is not a skill, but, uh, in terms of skills, <laughs> um, you know, it's funny because most doctors aren't particularly entrepreneurial. Uh, a lot of the time folks who go into medicine aren't folks who would also start their own business from what I've seen. They seem like the skill set of somebody that attracts them to medicine is not particularly congruent with one that takes people into bit the business world. Um, and maybe that's part of the shortcoming of the kind of folks that we're picking. Um, you know, I know that when they were picking folks, when I was an undergrad, you know, listen, uh, it's tough to get a 4.0 GPA in engineering, uh, tough to get that in, in business and other things. And, you know, it's tough to have the motivation to spend an entire summer studying for an MCAT. That's how it was back then. I, I don't know if it is still now. And and do all the volunteer work and do all the other stuff. Right. Um, 
our class wasn't very diverse. Most people were science, biology, anatomy, physiology background. We had 200 people in our class and I'd say maybe 20 of them were outside of that. One guy had done music, you know, another person was from engineering, a single engineer, you know, there was nobody from a business background, uh, or actually I think there may have been one or two, um, but very few. And so the system is geared that you select folks who are, or at least back then, I know it's changing now, but still folks who have high GPAs and science undergrads. And, um, and there isn't as much diversity of thoughts as, as I think would be beneficial, um, and diversity of skill set and diversity of, of, you know, uh, how people see the problems that we have. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I think just. We, we, we've talked a lot about the skills as well as the, the founding and uh, barriers that you faced, uh, when it came to, uh, or when it comes to ARIA overall. Um, but I'd like to talk a little bit more about how the scaling as well as the growth has gone, because those are, I mean, separate phases, at least in my head, you mentioned raising investment and that's something interesting, mainly because we, again, just today I had another conversation with another founder, um, who went to VCs, but he mentioned that his role as a medical founder was to say big words like pyodermic gangrenosum to impress people. Um, so how, how would, how would you frame your experience in terms of raising funds? Was it friends and family? Was it with angels uh, or was it bootstrapped overall your startup and how do you navigate that? And how would you, I guess, frame learnings for others in the future who are doing something similar? Yeah. There's a lot of learning that went on in terms of that for us. Uh, when we started it, we bootstrapped it because, um, nobody's really willing to give you money for just some ideas some pie in the sky idea, which, which was my experience early on and, and uh, frustration. Yeah, exactly. And I think that that's fair because, and a lot of people said, Hey, uh, you know, there's a bunch of companies doing this. What, what do we care? And so if you're not in medicine and in healthcare, um, and you don't see that death by a thousand cuts. Again, if somebody said, I want to build a smartphone and they didn't see it or experience it. And you said, well, I already have a cell phone. You're like, well, no, not a cell phone, a smartphone with a screen that you can use your hands. Like, what about a stylet? No, no, no stylet. Well, have you seen a Blackberry? It's good enough. Well, well you know, or a flip phone. No, not really, but it's hard because those iterations are difficult to describe for most people. Now there are early adopters who see that and understand that, but they're few and far between. And so especially when you're looking for investment, there's very few people who have money and most of those people aren't doctors. So they're not exposed to our hardships and our problems. And so what happens is, is that, you know, uh, innovation stops right there a lot of the time, because you say, well, can I have some money to do this? And it takes quite a bit of money to get this up and running. And so for us, we believed in it enough that we bootstrapped it. We put our own money in as founders and, uh, until we had a product that was built and that was being used by other physicians. Once that was the case, um, and we had launched in British Columbia to begin with, and folks were using it, we then were able to do a friends and family raise. And, uh, you know, we were that, that's always that phase where you're like, I don't want to let people down. If I lose my own money, I'm okay with it. But that's the part where you're like, okay, this is getting really serious. And you're like, you know, I, I can't let folks down because these are your friends, your family members who believe in you. It's such a huge, you know, uh, show of faith. And, uh, and that really even motivates you more to double down and say, okay, we really got to be successful now because, and I feel terrible if, if this, you know, this, this goes down the drain and this is other people's money. Now, luckily 
we're able to go past that and get to the point where we had enough users across Ontario and Alberta and British Columbia, where then we had angel investors come in and approach us. Um, you know, early on, uh, we spoke to a lot of angels and VCs and they said, nope, 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 nope. Because they said, you're making no money. Nobody's using it. Eh, we don't care about this. We said, well, can we show you the product? And they said, nah, not really. Or even you'd show them the product and they'd be like, yeah, it looks nice. But they don't get it because they're not the ones using it, right? Um, and so it, it's a very specialized tool, the technologies that we use um, and the death by a thousand cuts that we go through on a day-to-day -day basis. But as we gain traction, and again, we spent zero dollars on sales and marketing. This was all word of mouth. This was all just organic growth and um, expanding across the country. Um, and then, you know, you start making decks and then you start putting together projections and you start showing that you're making money and that you're growing and, and that the product itself is resonating with, with people. Uh, then we were fortunate enough to have some angel investors um, who often were VCs or who worked at venture capital, but put their own money. And, um, and then from there, you know, you get venture capital money as the next step once you, once you keep growing. So it's, it's a long, arduous road. Uh, and it's trial by fire. And a lot of it, you kind of learn as you go along. Uh, you know, I've been fortunate enough to have a couple of buddies who are, who are VCs. A good friend of mine is a VC and he was able to help a couple other folks, um, along the way in terms of how do you put together these different decks and how do you put together all this, the stuff that you've never been trained to do, but you figure it out, you know, it's not rocket science. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think a lot of that just comes back to this idea that we've heard time and time again in that there's like going down this road of starting a startup is so unpaved a lot of the time and that you just take the wrong path, realize the wrong path and come back to it a lot of the time. I, I guess, you know, one of the, one of the things that I, I want to go back to with that question is what were the main things that you had to unlearn when you were talking to the investors overall because you can't necessarily speak like a physician to investors because they won't get what you're saying necessarily so as a three-headed ceo monster how did you speak to investors to make sure that they were on board with you because scaling is not a cheap task and it's not easy at all to get people to part with their money either yeah well it started with again frustration so you <laughs> so you show up and uh angry <laughs> <laughs> you should be like, guys, why don't you get this? They're like, <laughs> so, uh, it'll be on my tombstone, but, uh, no. So, you know, the funny thing is, is that, uh, the things that you learn that you're good at, that you never knew you were good at. And, uh, and actually I often really enjoyed talking to angels and VCs and different people in the business world, because a lot of them genuinely want to make a difference. You know, you get the impression when you're not in it that, hey, these guys are just, you know, looking out to make a buck. That's not the case. I mean, obviously money is a motivating factor. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we live in a capitalistic society in a free market. Um, but a lot of the time my experience has been most of these people are actually pretty good people. They're personable. Um, they're friendly and nice. Um, when they do let you down, they're actually very respectful about it. Um, and I actually, personally really enjoyed meeting a lot of these people and uh, getting to know them and, uh, and the interactions have been educational in a lot of ways for, for me and for us, um, you know, as founders approaching them and, uh, learning about how they think, how they operate, what they're looking for. And then for them in terms of saying, oh, I, I didn't realize it was like that in medicine. Oh, really? And especially as it's become 
um, you know, with the pandemic, but even before then for something that people are aware of the shortcomings of the healthcare system and, you know, how we can make it better. And folks are investing more money into these kinds of projects and companies. I think that, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's been moving in us in the right direction. So, I mean, I think all of that to say from what I'm hearing from you, it's something that you learned along the way in terms of being able to communicate, um, with VCs to be able to speak the language and to figure out how to phrase things, not necessarily as you phrase them like a doctor, but yeah. to phrase them in such a way that you're able to communicate the key pain points that you're experiencing and to, I guess, lend your credibility to that. But one last question before we close off yeah. is just looking with an eye to the future. I mean, it's clear to me that digital information management, just hearkening back to that botch introduction, is the, the key to the future in order to be able to make sure that we know, like, how to manage patients properly, given their previous history. Um, where do you see the opportunities coming in that? And how are you positioning yourself and are your health re relative to these changes? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. I mean, there's a lot of exciting stuff going on and a lot of work to be done. And I think that, um, you know, when we started this, we said, let's look at the core of this, which is data, a good database, a sound database, and, you know, uh, in your day-to-day -day as a healthcare practitioner, what you do is that you interact with that electronic health record. Everything else in that ecosystem is, comes from that. If you have bad data, unreliable data, incomplete data based on the fact that the system is too cumbersome to use and to input the right information, then whatever analytics tools you have, whatever other kind of tools that you have for research plugged into that aren't particularly valid. And, you know, when I was the associate CMIO for Vancouver Coastal and with the big Cerner project where we went from paper across Vancouver to, to, you know, this digital system, we saw that the digital system, folks weren't entering in a lot of the right SNOMED codes, ICD-9 codes, tagging information in terms of medical history appropriately because, and, and people using it in a way that there were shortcuts. And so, you know, over the four or five years that I did that, I realized and saw that you know, people, even doctors, doctors are people and they like to cut corners if they can. And when it comes to data entering, you know, we don't enter data in a meaningful way uh, to then be used in a meaningful way because of the way that these systems are done. And so you're not going to do extra work to put in a SNOMED code if that takes you too long. You're just going to type something in next, right? You may not even tag it. Uh, will you put in additional information relating to that? Maybe not. And so right off the bat, it's, I think, a lot of what we need to do in healthcare really starts with that database and the interaction between the user and that system in terms of design. It needs to be intuitive. It needs to be simple. It needs to be quick. You know, we don't need to be turned into data monkeys, which is what's happened to doctors and nurses in the States. You know, they're spending a third of their time just entering in data. They're frustrated. They hate their EHRs. They hate the technology. You know, what we're hearing out of most doctors in the past 10, 15 years is, oh, we, we hate the tech that we're using, which is pretty rare. Most people love the tech that they're using, you know, your cell phone, your laptop, your, you know, this or that, your smartwatch. There's so many things going on that have made our lives better. Yet in healthcare, folks are saying this is terrible because it's slowing them down, taking them away from patient care because they're inefficient tools. The tech is bad, but it's not because technology as a whole is bad. It's just poorly designed, but people didn't know what they're doing. So unfortunately, right now we're at a point where uh, data migration is so difficult. So once you're on a system, most people stay on that system forever. So the early adopters are the ones that became the biggest. So Cerner and Epic in the States, and they've kind of, you know, taken over Canada as well for inpatient. And then the ones for outpatient that we have in Canada, you know, there's, there's a few. And, uh, 
those vendors have been around for 20 years. They're not particularly good. It's hard to gut the code and, and do this and that. But, you know, folks who are already on those systems, data migration is a big hassle. So I think that, you know, it starts with better systems, better ways of migrating data from old systems to newer ones and democratizing that, you know, saying that, hey, listen, you can't be held hostage by an old system that has all your data and all your information that clearly is causing harm. You know, the amount of people I know who are on existing systems and they hate it is, is pervasive, right? Um, so I think at some level you need better legislation and the politicians to be more involved in that. Um, I think at, at a big level, you need more of us in healthcare to be involved in that, uh, better technology that, that works for us. And then moving towards using that information in terms of analytics, predictive analytics, you know, dashboards, even report cards for how are you doing with your patients? Show your patient. Here's how you're doing. Don't just call them and say, Hey, your blood work came in. It's normal. That's, it's not very good. You know, that's, and, and you know what? A lot of folks don't even call them and say your blood work's normal. They're like, I'll call you if your blood work's abnormal. How often have you seen that? You know, the patient needs to have access to their data, to their information. They need to be educated in terms of their healthcare. You know, this starts at a grassroots movement. Teach people from day one in school how to take care of themselves. Share their information with them so they can see it. Share information over time and translate that for them in terms of what it means for their care. This is all stuff that we can do. We have the technology to do it. It's a no brainer and it's going to take a lot of work at a lot of levels from physicians to corporations, to politicians and the government and everybody in between to, to advocate for patients, to advocate for the healthcare system at large and to get where we're, we can be and need to be. I'll let Jeff close off um, in a sec, but one last comment. I am, I am very frustrated for this conversation. Oh my God. <laughs> Wow. As an engineer, just, there's so much inefficiencies that you're describing and how everything works. It's just, it's, it's frustrating. And with the theme of frustration, um, the, the force that you harness inside and use to fuel your creations, Sam, do you have any frustrated pluggables that you'd like to plug? Well, I think that if you feel the way that we do and I do, please reach out. I always. I'm happy to, to chat at a very basic level to help, to collaborate. I'd love to hear about amazing ideas that you have or projects that you're working on. If you're interested in what we're doing with ARIA Health, check us out at ARIAEHR, spelled A-R-Y-A-E-H-R.com. Um, yeah, I mean, listen, this is, uh, we got a lot of good work to be done. So stoked to, um, to, you know, plug what we're doing and to touch base with anybody else who feels the same way. Awesome. And you can find How It's Met at, at How It's Met on LinkedIn and Twitter. Um, and you can find uh, How It's Met at HowIt'sMet.com. Till next time. <laughs>